You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Our scripture reading today is from Romans 1. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness That is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Amen. And you know it's going to be good. Some people are already clapping. It's great. All right. Uh, Happy Sunday to you. Happy Mother's Day. The sun's back out. That's nice, right? Yeah. um, uh, Recently in none other a place than Oxford University, it's considered by some, you may know, to be the number one university in the world, although as a graduate of the University of Houston, I'm kind of offended by that. I just beg to differ. But anyway, Oxford had a debate recently around this question. Here it is. The question was, should faith be kept private? Should faith be kept private? And this big debate got going on campus. It emerged because there was a Christian group on campus that wanted to have a simple Q&A about the relevance of the Christian faith to life in general. And a bunch of students on Oxford protested. They said, no, we don't want that kind of meeting on our campus. And one of the persons objecting to the Christians having this meeting on campus, this person who said, yes, absolutely, faith should be kept private, wrote in the campus newspaper and said this, religion becomes dangerous when it is more than a private matter. For those religious people for whom public expression is an integral part of their faith, the question remains as to why such proselytizing is necessary. Surely it speaks to the insecurity of a religious group that it feels the only way to preserve its role in society is to shove its beliefs down the throat of an unsuspecting populace. Public preaching is rarely effective. Again, I'm offended right there already. I'm kidding. No. Uh, If a person feels like something is missing in their lives, they will do their own research. She concludes like this. The internet provides an infinite resource for the religiously curious. Of course, she's saying, she represents the views of a lot of folks in our culture. If you or me, someone else, Hindu, Buddhist, Christian, Muslim, somebody else, does something with their faith besides just... Google religion results in the dark. They're not just insecure, 
They're dangerous. So is she right? Is faith, should faith be only a personal, private thing? Let me ask you this. What's this thing right here? Come on, what's that? Yeah, right car. Now, does it work here? Does it work here? Let me see. No, here. Yeah. No. <laughs> or here. Yeah, all right. Well, how about this? What's this? Come on. It's the national symbol of the state of the country of Texas, right? Now, <laughs> does it work here? Or here? Yes, it works here. Well, how about this? What's this? Jim. Yeah. Does it work when you're here? <laughs> or when you're here? Yeah, see, a car is only effective when you drive it. A taco is only effective when you eat it. A gym's only effective when you use it. And in the same way, we're going to see today, Paul says the gospel is only effective when it goes public. Why is this? Well, to sort of <laughs> paraphrase the Geico commercial, it's just what it does. It's just what it does when you're the gospel. You go public. And Paul is going to show us here as we continue on in Romans 1 today uh, that the gospel we're going to see is a public salvation, a public salvation. It's meant to go public, work public, change the public. Faith may be personal, ooh, but it's never, ever just private. So why is, how can Paul say this? Why is the gospel a public salvation? We're going to see it's because of three things, because the gospel is also a public declaration. It's for those out there. It's a public expression. It's for those in here, because it's a public revelation it's from someone out there. Public declaration, expression, revelation, all from Romans 1. Let's begin here and look and see why the gospel is a public declaration. Now, here we go. Romans 1, Paul is writing. He's writing this letter that's all about the gospel to this early church in the ancient city of Rome. And he says this, and it's fascinating. In verse 13, we'll pick it up. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you. But he goes on to say, but I couldn't, I wasn't, I was stopped. So here's Paul in the pre-Skype days, pre-FaceTime days, saying many times he had planned to go to Rome. Now you're saying, now it's Paul and I got something in common. <laughs> I've been trying to go to Italy my whole life, right? But I couldn't make it. But it never worked out for Paul to get there. Now why did he want so badly to go to this place, to Rome? Why did he try so many times to get there? Look at verse 14. He says, because I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. So here's the picture. Paul is saying to a group of people he has never met. He has never met. He says, I am obligated to them. The word literally means in debt. He's saying, I am in debt to a people I've never met. Now, this is strange. How can you be in debt to someone you've never met? And the answer is, that's because there are two types of, two ways to be in debt. Here we go. Way number one to be in debt. Let's say things are super tight for me this month, and I'm having a hard time with, with gas or groceries this month. And so I say, hey, I go, Pastor Barnabas, I say, hey, would you lend me $100? And he says, sure, no worries. Here's your Benjamin. Maybe the later services will like that one a little bit more. That's all right. It's all good. Now, now I'm in debt to Barnabas until I pay him back because he has lent to me. Now, I've borrowed from him, but that's not at all what's happening here because Paul and these people have never met, which means Paul is talking about a second kind of debt, which is this. Let's say now you and I have never met. We've never met, and someone else gives me $100 to give to you. 
You're saying, I like this scenario better. Yes, very good. They say they, they give something to me to give to you because you have a need. And as long, therefore, as that $100, as that something is in my possession, but it's supposed to be for you, I'm in debt to you until what I have in my possession passes to you. And so Paul is saying here, in the same way, I've got something in my possession I am obligated to pass on to Greeks and non-Greeks, Jews, Gentiles, to everyone I have never met yet. What is Paul obligated to give them? Next verse. He says, that is why I am so eager to what? Preach the gospel. He's telling them, I owe you the gospel. What does this show us? Oh, it's showing us what the gospel, when it's received in the human heart, what it rightly does to a person. Here it is. We're, we're shown that the gospel obligates you and me, us, to the world. Obligates us to the world. Paul is saying, I owe the debt of preaching the gospel to every single person I have never met yet. There's something that I have that's really for them. Why is this? Well, on one hand, it's for two reasons. On one hand, we owe the gospel of the world. Number one, for God's sake. Come on, church. It's for the sake of his actions through Jesus Christ, which deserve honor, our loyalty, our sacrifice, our obedience. Jesus is that good. He deserves that much. So on one hand, we are obligated to preach the gospel for God's sake. But second, we're also shown we're supposed to preach the gospel for people's sake. For the sake of the people in the world that God loves and God has made. He's someone you may have heard of. His name is Father Gregory Boyle. And Gregory Boyle is a Jesuit priest, and he's worked for many years in some of the toughest neighborhoods in Los Angeles. And he wrote a book all about it. You may have read it. It's called Tattoos on the Heart. Great title. The Power of Boundless Compassion. And in the book, he writes like a million stories of, of heartbreak, of, of incredible things that have happened, of people who are trapped in these cycles of poverty and violence. And for his work, he's received a ton of awards. He's been on 60 Minutes. And one of his stories in the book goes like this. He says that one day there was this 12-year-old kid in his church named Batito. And Batito walked into his church and Batito didn't speak a ton of English. And so he was always trying to learn new English phrases from TV. And Father Gregory, who most of his church members just called G. Yeah. So the Batito, for Gregory, right? Short G. All right. Break it down for folks. So Batito walked in one day with a phrase he had learned from an El Pollo local commercial. Now, for both of you in the room who have not relocated here from Southern California, El Pollo Loco is a fast food burrito place. It's not bad. And, and, and Batito walked in one day and said, hey, gee, you know what? You the real deal. It's the El Pollo Loco catchphrase. And Father Gregory writes, he says, routines get born this way. Batito and I would try to catch each other. And I would say to him, hey, Beto, you know why they said that about you? Because you're the real deal. This even becomes our nicknames for each other, as in, where are you going, real deal? What's up, real deal? Petito's precocious for his age. He walks into my office another day. He stands in front of my desk and says, hey, gee, kick me down with 20 bones, yeah? <laughs> so I said, what? I'm taken aback by his straight out there boldness. What do you need $20 for? Petito says, taking my lady to the movies. <laughs> Your lady, I say to him, not even pretending to be shocked. How old are you? Twelve. Twelve? How old is your lady? Sixteen. Sixteen? Yeah, he says, calming me down with a flick of his hand. 
but she's short. <laughs> oh, I say, so she's short. Well, that explains everything. Here's your $20 in, you know. <laughs> One Sunday evening, Petito's playing with his cousin outside. He's, Gregory writes, there are two gang members standing in front of a dumpster, smoking. A van pulls up with two rival gang members in the front seat, and when they see the first two smoking cigarettes in front of the dumpster, they open fire. A bullet catches one of them. He drops. Everyone runs. Everyone knows that when gunfire begins, you run, you move, except for Batito. For some reason, he freezes, and a very large bullet enters his side above the waist, travels through, exits the other side. They call these through and throughs. The doctor, a friend of mine, told me that this bullet was the highest caliber he'd ever seen. The sheer reverberation of it paralyzed Batito from the waist down, though it hadn't even touched his spine. Word gets to me, Father Gregory says, and I go to the hospital. Petito survives, but two hours into the recovery, I watch through the window of his room as a team of nurses and doctors rush in and surround him. They pound on his chest, they beg and they plead with his heart to cooperate. His heart finally deafens to their entreaties, and he dies. Petito was precocious, funny, bold, and only 12 years old. He was the real deal. And then Father Gregory writes this about the ones who pulled that trigger. He said, if we long to be in the world, who God is, then somehow our compassion has to find its way into the public. When those in that van were caught and I found I knew them, it was excruciating to not be able to hate them. Look at this. But they were sheep without a shepherd. And for lack of someone to reveal the truth to them, they had evaded healing. And the task of returning them to themselves got more hardened and difficult. What's he saying? He's saying we ought to declare the gospel, come on, for people's sake, for the sake of the people in the world. He said if there had been a person present to reveal the truth to them, then maybe, just maybe, a little 12-year-old named Petito's life might have been spared, but there wasn't, and he was lost. A few years ago on an airplane, I was flying somewhere one night for a ministry trip, and a couple of flight attendants came back into the, the, the cabin. They sat down next to me, and they tried to get me to go up front in first class with the off-duty flight attendant, who for whatever reason was interested in me, and wanted me to go with her to her hotel that night when the plane landed. Now, do you know what I did in that moment? Here it is. I started talking all about my wife. How much I loved her, how great she was, how I couldn't wait to get home to her, how we met. And they started, they got up and scoffed at me, saying, oh, you'll never get a chance. Another chance with a woman like this. You know what? Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. Listen, when I, when you, when you really love someone first, don't you allow your love for that person to influence all your other relationships. You do. If you really love something, doesn't it become part of what you talk about? Doesn't it become part of your public declaration? Listen, we publicly declare we take vacations. I see this. You post this on social media. We publicly declare when we go to a movie and we watch a a purple-skinned, computer-generated alien bad guy snap his fingers. Some of you publicly declare that two or three times, you know. Do we publicly declare the gospel? See, if God has loved you like this with the gospel, shouldn't we love our neighbors, our classmates, family like he has loved us? Yes. God didn't shove anything down your throat, did he? No, he didn't. Neither should we. He was respectful with you, wasn't he? Yes, and so we should be. But he was also persistent with you, wasn't he? So should we be.
And aren't you glad for those of you who are Christians? I hope you'd say yes. That someone invited you to a church or a Bible study or a community group or whatever once upon a time. Aren't you glad somebody invited you here? The answer is yes. For sure, Morgan, yes. The answer is yes. Listen, you may not be feeling that right now, but that's okay. Let me just encourage you. Invite someone here. Invite someone into your home. Open your mouth. Share your story of how you became a Christian. Just give God a chance to do something publicly in the world. Why? like Father Gregory showed us. It's not the proclaiming that's dangerous. It's the not proclaiming that's dangerous. It's supposed to be declared publicly. We owe the world the gospel for God's sake. God's sake. That's number one. The gospel is a public declaration, but it's also more than that. At the same time, it's also number two now. Here we go. It's also a public expression. It's for those in here. Why? Look at verse 15. This blew my mind when I was uh, slaving over a hot Bible to bring this to you. Verse 15, it says, that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you. That's plural. You all, y'all who are in Rome. You say, what's the big deal? Well, here's what it is. Remember who Paul is saying he's writing this to. He's writing this what? To a church full of who, at least in theory, Christian people, Jesus people, right? Paul says, therefore, I want to preach the gospel to the church. I want to preach the gospel not just to Greeks and non-Greeks. I want to preach the gospel, he's saying, to those who already believe it. He's saying, I want to preach to the Christians the same thing I say to the non-Christians, that Jesus Christ loved you, came for you, lived a life as you should have lived, but you couldn't and you didn't. He died the death that you should have died, but you couldn't and you didn't. To free yourself because you couldn't and you didn't from yourself, from fear, from death, from hell, from Satan, from the grave. He was raised from the dead for you to reconcile you back to God and all things back to God. Paul says, I want to preach that to the people who already believe it. Why? It must mean this. It must mean that Jesus doesn't just want to save those out there. He wants to also save, continue saving those of us in here. He's showing us the gospel is for Christians. You say, how can that be? Here it is. The gospel can only be for Christians if the gospel is something that impacts not just our personal relationship with God, but our public relationships with everyone And everything else. Not just to save a person from their sin, although that's great, but something to transform your life and therefore transform society, the world around you. And rather than just telling you how to do this, let me try to show you how they did it. How this church that got this letter in Rome, how this early community of Christians, specifically in Rome, publicly expressed the gospel and what happened next. Here it is. When the gospel first encountered this group of Christians in a society that told them, like our society tells us now, to keep it personal, in the dark, just private, what did they do? How did they respond? Someone named Rodney Stark, he's an early church historian, wrote all about the rise of the early church, and he summarized it all like this. Quote, he said, the cities filled with the homeless and the impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. The cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachment. The cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. The cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity, for what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a whole new culture. In other words, Stark is saying, no, not that Stark. Some of you have seen too many of those movies. Rodney Stark is saying, 
in the end, Jesus beat Rome. I'm saying Jesus beat Rome. He, Jesus defeated the tyranny of the Roman Empire, not because Christians had a private faith and kept it to themselves, but because Christians had a public faith. And specifically, he tells us, history tells us, they expressed the gospel in three ways. Specifically, it changed the culture around them. So let's look at these three things he just mentioned in turn. First, he talked about sex and family. And you may know the early Christian community was one of the earliest groups, history, that decided, here it is, that abortion was wrong, that female infanticide was wrong, because it was actually a right in the Roman Empire to throw your baby away if you didn't want it, especially female babies, because males were more prized than females. They called it abandoning your child to the fates. Convenient, right? But the Christian community said, no more, doesn't matter how you want to rationalize it, that's wrong. To be a Christian means you cannot kill a child made in the image of God. Girls and boys are of equal value, and they argued publicly outlawing and they overturned these practices and christians reserved sex exclusively from marriage you can you know from history between one man and one woman and here was the public effect of that because there was then like in some ways today there was a double standard in our culture for men and women sexually good thing that never happens today right a man that day could have mistresses on the side and it was tolerated but a woman could not. And so by saying sex is reserved exclusively for marriage, it dramatically raised the fortunes of women in the Christian community. It eliminated a sexual double standard. And women and widows, he says, streamed into the church. And in that way, therefore, the Christians were a kind of original Me Too movement. They said, no more good old boys club, where women are objects and only seen a value for their looks, for their bodies. So why should we then speak up for the unborn? Why should we refuse to objectify women? It's because the gospel is at stake. Yeah, not a whole lot of amens. That's all right. It's going to get better. Here we go. Let's talk about your money. All right, number two, talk about money. Yeah. I'm hitting all of them today. Money, yeah. Remember what, uh, what uh, uh, Rodney Stark said? He says, to the non-believing Roman public, Christians didn't just offer hope. As crucial as that is, they offered charity to the homeless and the poor. They gave their money liberally. You can see example of, example of that in the book of Acts. You see Christians selling their homes, selling their property to care for their community. And Christians didn't just say, therefore, my money is mine. I can use it how I want. Don't talk to me about that. And now let's pause and just acknowledge, here is where these first two issues of sex and then money, here's how they intersect with us today. In our culture today, conservatives want to say, we should tell people what to do with their bodies, but no one should tell me what I ought to do with my money. I've worked real hard for it. My money is my, leave my money alone. I can express myself financially however I want. Who are you to tell me what to do with it? But liberals in our culture, of course, are the opposite. They say, your body is yours. You can do with your body what you want, but your money belongs to the government or the community or the poor somehow. We should tell people what to do with their money, but we ought to leave their bodies alone. Oh, but look, hear me. Jesus Christ makes no such distinction. To all of us, he says, your body is mine because I literally made it. And he says, your money is mine because I gave it to you. So why then should we give our money? It's because the gospel is at stake. Yeah. And the third way now, moving on, the Roman church expressed itself publicly is that it didn't ignore, you can see from Stark, they didn't ignore the subject of race, of race, yeah. As an historian, he points out the facts that how Christians handle the subject of race matters as much in their public expression 
sex and money. Now, most Americans believe, and I know this because I've read all kind of studies, not just from, you know, some disgruntled, uh, you know, left-wing conspiracy theory media outlet, but by, by respected orthodox Christian researchers, these studies show that the majority of majority culture American Christians, that would be my fellow extra pasty white fellow Christians in here like me, SPF wearing, yes, uh, you know, hat, hat umbrearing, uh, umbrella using Christians, believe the best way, best way to handle the topic of race is not to talk about it because they say that only makes it worse. Now, those same Christians don't believe that about the topics of sex or money. They say the church should talk about that, the pastor should talk about that, but race we shouldn't. And yet look what Paul talks about in, the, in chapter 1 of the letter that's all about the gospel. In the first 17 verses, he talks about four different ethnic groups naming them that the gospel is for. Jew, Gentile, Greeks, non-Greeks that all have a history of conflict. He says the gospel is for them, it's for all of them. And so here now is the radical element, public element that many of us can miss. If the gospel was for everyone, what does it mean? It means that God, therefore, therefore Paul is showing, loves all ethnic groups equally. And therefore, if we love what God loves, we also ought to love how he loves. And sometimes that means to hate what God hates. Doesn't Paul go on in Romans and say, we hate what's evil, we cling to what's good. He does. Let me give you one example of what I think that could look like. Don't you hate it? I think you should. That some people in our country, a certain skin color, can move to almost any neighborhood, eat at almost any restaurant, walk down almost any street, and shop at any store without being looked at twice. People asking them what they're doing there. Some people statistically get a better education. They get more lenient prison sentences for the same crime committed as those with different skin colors. Don't you hate that? I hate that. God, I hate what's evil. See, that happens. That happens even to our own brothers and sisters in Christ sometimes. What do we do with this? Well, the answer isn't to feel guilty. That's not what any of this is about. Guilt never helps. Shame never helps. The answer is just to start speaking up publicly, acting publicly for these things. Advocate for what's good. Why? Because just like with sex and money here with race, the gospel is at stake. And that's why we do what we do here. The gospel isn't something just to be experienced personally. Come on. It's to be expressed publicly. How can we do all this? How can we find, then, last question, how can we find the courage to make a public decoration and the faith, the courage to express it all publicly? It's not, again, through guilt, not through shame. Those are terrible motivators, and they, won't, they don't work. They don't last. Where can we get the power to live all this out publicly? Number three, it's by seeing, finally, the gospel is a public, here's the word, revelation. What do I mean? Back to Father Gregory, Petito once more. Father Gregory concluded his story about his 12-year-old friend by saying this. He says, Jesus says, if you love those who love you, big wow, <laughs> which I believe is the original Greek. <laughs> but to love the enemy and find some spaciousness for the victimizer as well as the victim, that resembles more the expansive compassion of God. That's why you do it, to be in the world who God is. And here finally is what we seek, a compassion that can stand in awe at what the poor have to carry rather than stand in judgment at how they carry it. Yeah, now if he's right, I think he is, that true public compassion for those around us is standing in awe 
at what they carry rather than in judgment at how they carry it. Wouldn't it make sense that God, the ultimate being of compassion, would have done that for us? Wouldn't it make sense that there was a place where God expressed his compassion publicly for all that we carry rather than only sitting at home in heaven Googling humanity results in the dark? It would make sense because he did. How did he do it? Did he do it? Did he, God express his love for you on the internet and, and the privacy is some chat room in heaven? No. Romans 3.25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed what? Publicly. Colossians 2.15. When God had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a what? public display of them having triumphed over them through jesus and in case it wasn't clear here's one more jesus christ galatians 3 was what publicly portrayed as crucified what are you trying to say paul he's trying to show you he was all out in the open god was making it clear through the public display of jesus christ that in no uncertain and forever terms that his love for you and for me was a public thing he was talking about us bragging about us in public he was talking paul says to every demon every spiritual power every authority showing off his love for us showing off his care for us every earthly power every leader of some nation like caesar then like others today some leader who hates their people he's saying God didn't like that. God doesn't do that. No, the gospel is the public revelation of the love and compassion of God for you and for me and for the world. And when you receive it, when you live in it every day, it's what can compel you to declare it publicly and express it publicly for others. Years ago, when I was a uh, campus missionary at the University of Texas, I was out on the West Mall one day. Some of you have been there. Uh, our group was out there just sharing on a microphone publicly about our faith and our stories of how Jesus had saved us. And I was sharing how Jesus had saved me supernaturally, healed my body miraculously. And, of course, most people are just ignore you and a few make fun of you. But that next Wednesday night at our meeting, I saw a young woman slip in the back of our meeting after it started. She and a few of her friends, and they were all drinking out of red solo cups, <laughs> which must mean they had brought the party, apparently, into our, our party, and, and of course had beer in their cups, and they were all dressed super provocatively, and their, uh, the, the, the lady's name was Julia, and Julia was a stripper, an exotic dancer, and she wanted out of that lifestyle, didn't know how to do it, and her friends that were with her, they laughed, and they left, but she stayed, she came back, she came back, she met Jesus, and she came out of her lifestyle. She reconciled dramatically with her mother. It was a miracle. It's powerful. Why? All because some students, 18, 19, 20-year-olds, proclaimed publicly their love for Jesus. They took the hit. Just like Jesus publicly declared his love for us. He took the hit. Come on. It's worth it. It's worth it for you. It's worth it for us. It's worth it for them. Uh, Gospel. It's for everyone. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.